1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you, or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is without, with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. We are in the last chapter of, first, of the book of First Corinthians, and the last chapter deals with exhortations, uh, uh, final farewell of uh, the apostle to the Corinthians, uh, final instructions to them uh, that they should do, just to let you know what's coming next in a couple of weeks. Uh, we will be going and preaching through the book of Matthew. So that's where we're going next after 1 Corinthians 16. Last week we talked about uh, the fact that Christians are givers. Uh, and we noted that here in this context, Paul was saying that uh, there was a great need in Jerusalem among the saints. And this need was made known to all the Gentile churches, and the Gentile churches were, were very generous in their giving to help out the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, we, we saw that uh, generosity, giving, is the very nature of the Christian. Uh, it's one of the fruit that exemplifies the fact that a person is born again. They have a desire to help other people. We give because we understand as Christians that God has given so much to us, and it is only fitting that he who has given so much to us, we ought to return. Well, chapter 16, as we've said, deals with Paul's closing instructions to the church of court. Uh, one of Paul's exhortations uh, is found in verses 5 through 14, and the stress of today's message is going to be on verses 13 and 14. Having been instrumental in the planting of the church of Corinth, Paul is concerned, as he ends his letter to the Corinthians, is that they'll stand firm in the faith. He's always concerned that they will be remain steadfast. He's desirous, it says here, that he wants Timothy and Apollos to come to them. <clears throat> if you recall in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentioned that uh, about the ministry of others in Corinth, particularly about the ministry of himself and Apollos. For he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And the ministries of Timothy and Apollos 
uh, were very effective in Corinth, and it would aid the church in their spiritual growth to have Timothy come to them, to have Apollos uh, come to them again. We do know that Apollos was greatly used in Corinth, and that's why uh, the Corinthians said that some say, I'm of Apollos, others said, I'm of Paul. He had that profound of a ministry to them. We learn from uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, that the Apostle Paul had encouraged uh, Apollos uh, to go uh, to Corinth. We know that Apollos uh, did not, the scripture says he was mighty in the scriptures. He was not a novice in terms of the scriptures, but he did not know of the further development in the life of the church, of the work of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. We're told that Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and teach him further of the development in in biblical revelation. He takes that and he will go, and what the book of Acts says concerning him, that he powerfully refuted the Jews, proving to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So he had a tremendous impact. He was very bold. Uh, and that will come out uh, in light of what we're going to talk about primarily today. Uh, if there was ever a great example of a man, it was Apollos who was fearless in proclaiming the scriptures, even at the risk of his own life. Well, uh, we see as we go through 1 Corinthians, it should be apparent uh, by now to you that there were uh, multitudes of spiritual issues going on in the church of course, that the apostle had to address, he had to correct, he had to exhort, admonish. We know one of the, the, the most difficult was that there were schisms in the church of, of Corinth. Uh, we know that there was the presence of false teachers, particularly just in 1 Corinthians 15. We saw that there were those teaching that there was no such thing as a resurrection of all things. So the entirety of chapter 15 deals with the fact No, there is a resurrection, contrary to what some are telling you. So we had all those issues that were going on in the church of Corinth that he had to address. In verse 9, Paul mentions the numerous opportunities that have arisen for his ministry uh, to be ongoing. But he said, if you'll notice in verse 9, there are many adversaries. There are always many adversaries to the apostle. And in terms of commitment to the ministry, Paul says that he works the work of ministry, but it's a work of ministry that is uh, at times great peril to himself. One thing is clear. Uh, As you read what Paul says here, you read through Corinthians, you read through all the New Testament, the ministers of the gospel are to expect conflict in their ministries. As Paul said, The adversaries are many. I can say to you that within the last 10 years of my 30 years of ministry in the Christian church, I've seen the rise of probably more adversaries to the faith than I've seen in the entirety of my 30 years of ministry. Whether it's heresies like the Federal Vision or the compromise to theistic evolution uh, that we see, or the growing compromise among Christians in terms of to faithfully 
apply a Christian worldview in every area of life, such as in the realm of politics, there are adversaries to have to deal with. There is spiritual conflict. And in light of these adversaries, we see in the context of that, look what he says in verse 13 and 14, and that's going to be the focus of the message today. He says, in light of all he just told them, he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And as we look at verses 13 and 14, we see that there's a great admonition given here by the apostle, addressed uh, fundamentally to the men of Corinth. Men are to lead in spiritual battle. Men are to be the protectors of their homes, the protectors of the church. They are to be protectors in the civil realm. Uh, males are endowed by their uh, creator with the capacity for leadership. We've talked about that before in First Corinthians. And because they're endowed by the creator for uh, leadership, they ought to lead. In other words, what Paul said, act like men. Be strong is his exhortation. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> the thrust of today's message is focusing on verses 13 and 14. And since it is Paul's application of what he's saying to the Corinthians, it's going to be the application today. Now, what does it mean to be a man? Is it the rough and tough Clint Eastwood? Go ahead, make my day. Is that the real man? Is it the Arnold Schwarzenegger, the big bodybuilder, uh, <clears throat> muscle-bound, physically take-down opponents? Is that a man? You know, by the way, Schwarzenegger, despite Hollywood's portrayal, has proved himself not to really be a real man, according to the Word of God. Unfaithful to his wife fathering children through a maid in his household, uh, <clears throat> demonstrating that he's not a, ma uh, a man in that regard, governed uh, California for a time, not according to biblical principles. See, the world has its idea of what a man is, but God has another idea that we see revealed in scriptures. Is it the... Uh, is a real man, the emotionally hardened male who should never be seen to cry. Sometimes it's seen to be unmanly for men to cry. So do real men ever cry? Well, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, told, wept over his sons. Joseph, and the great story about Joseph in Egypt, when he reveals himself finally to his brothers who did evil to him, it says he wept over on their shoulders. David shed many tears. You can read through the Psalms. He shed many tears with respect to those who don't love God as they ought to love God. And it would move David to tears. The great King Josiah, whom God says there was no king as great as Josiah in terms of whose heart was tender towards me, who served me with the determination to obey my law. There was no king like Josiah. And we are told that when the law of God was found in the temple, 
and even as a young king, he tore his clothes, it says, and he wept, for he realized what had come upon Jerusalem was because of the rebellion of the people, and would move the great Josiah to tears. Ezra wept over the great sins of the nation that had led to Judah's captivity. Job, it says, wept for the needy when he's saying there's the integrity in his heart. He says, I have been concerned about the needy. I have wept for the needy. The Lord Jesus himself wept over Lazarus and the loss of Lazarus and how heartbroken uh, Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha was. And in the shortest verse, it is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We're told that Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he came to her. And he said, I would have gathered you under, my, uh, my, under me like a, a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And he wept over Jerusalem because he knew of the impending disaster that would come upon them for their failure to accept him. Paul, we are told, admonished the churches with tears at times. So real men aren't afraid to cry when the situation merits it. But notice what they're crying about. The sins of the nations, the sins of the people, uh, how they are failing to obey God, and they are moved within to be so concerned that it moves them to tears. A book was written a while back called The Feminization of America, and I must concur that manhood in many ways in America has been diminished in our culture. Now, let me make it very clear. I'm all for womanhood. <laughs> thing is, I want women to be women, uh, and we don't want our men to be feminine. So let's make that clear. Let the men be men, and let the women be women. The growing acceptance in our culture concerning homosexuality has, as you know, decimated uh, <clears throat> maleness in our culture in many regards, and it is one reason why Christian men, I think if you were to take a poll of Christian men, that they find homosexual men so repulsive because they're acting like women, and that's what just bothers a godly man. It's probably one of the most conspicuous denials of maleness that one can find when you find a homosexual male. This may sound radical, but here it is. I contend that many men, even the rough and tough in America, aren't really men according to the Word of God. Nor they may still be males, but they don't exemplify the characteristics of manhood. Now, why do I say this? I say it because many men do not meet the qualifications for manhood as outlined by the Word of God. They don't meet the standards of being a man as set forth in the pages of the Holy Spirit. God defines manhood in His Word. And though I'm not <clears throat> rushing to go out and start a new book, which I am not, but it has come to my mind that the next one, who knows when, will be probably titled, The Great Need of Our Time, Where Are the Real Men? Is that going to be a 500-page book? You might think, do you ever write anything uh, 
larger than, I mean, you get little booklets and you get these massive things. You do anything in between, I promise you it'll be something in between. <clears throat> but <clears throat> as we look at biblical manhood, we see Paul's admonition in verse 13. I want, want you to look very closely at what this admonition is. It's very straightforward, but it's profound to say the least. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There it is. So we immediately see some of the characteristics of manhood as set forth in the Word of God right here. The Greek grammar is most telling in this passage as well. There are four imperatives in the present tense in this verse alone. Remind you again that an imperative is a command. In this, it is a command. Do something. It's strong. It's meant to be strong. It is a command to do it. And it's in the present tense. We've mentioned before the present tense denotes ongoing activity. So, here are the present imperatives in this one verse. Be always on the alert. Stand firm all the time. Always act like men. Always be strong. That's what the grammar says. So, males, this is the biblical command given to us. And being that it is an imperative, it is not a suggestion. This is what God expects of Christian professing men. And therefore, it is to be the ongoing characteristic of our life. That's the present tense. It's to be what we should be all the time. Are you already convicted? I haven't even gotten to the main pass, uh, bulk of the message yet. Why the command to always be on the alert? Well, as in any physical war, if you're, not, if you're a soldier and you don't remain alert, then you're going to likely end up dead if you don't stay on the, uh, always on alert. The Scripture makes it very clear that we have a great adversary. We're talking about it in a spiritual sense now. We have a great adversary, the devil, whom the Bible says walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, he may be bound, the Bible says he is bound, and that means his activity is restricting the earth, but he's very dangerous. And Satan is, is a foe to be taken very seriously uh, among Christians. Now, some of the names given to Satan are the devil, the adversary, the tempter, the destroyer. These are some of the names that are given uh, to the devil. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. What he did in tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden was an act of murder to seek to get her to fall, and he succeeded. And therefore, that's why Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. We are engaged in a spiritual war, the scripture says, and uh, 
in being engaged in this spiritual war, as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 tells us, that war is against rulers, against the powers, against the forces of darkness in high places, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. That's whom we're dealing with. That's how the devil is seeking as a roaring lion, walking about, trying to destroy us if he could. Real men, as Paul says, are to always be on the alert. You are in a spiritual battle, and you better be paying attention. Because you've got an adversary that, apart from the sovereign hand of God, you don't stand a chance against that adversary. Only in Christ's strength can you, any of us, uh, prevail against the devil. So real men are vigilant. They stay on the alert. Turn with me. I draw your attention to Matthew 26. And as I stop someone in Sunday school hour trying to meddle in the sermon, this is where they're getting ready to meddle. All right. Matthew 26. Turn to Matthew 26. <clears throat> Take a look at verses 36 through 46. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that uh, his arrest is imminent. He's gone out to pray, and he wanted his disciples to pray with him. We begin reading at verse 36, and it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not Keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And he came, found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now Peter, who had... Earlier in the evening, said under when Jesus said, someone's going to betray me, he says, there may be the others, but I'll never betray you, Jesus. I will never. You can count on me, Jesus. And yet Jesus finds Peter sleeping with the rest of them. And Jesus has to say, you couldn't even keep watch with me an hour. And Jesus exhorts them, remember, you better keep watching now. That's the present, that's a command. It's an imperative present tense here too. Keep watching and keep praying. Always be doing that. Why? 
so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. You, you know, a lot of us, we don't want to necessarily, as a Christian, want to fall into temptation, to fall into sin, but the flesh uh, is weak. It is weak. And that's why we have to be on the alert. <coughs> Peter failed to be on the alert. As a result, his pride led him to deny Jesus. He was, uh, at that point, was Peter acting like a man? Not really. Not at this point he wasn't. A real man would have been alert. A real man would have been alert to his weaknesses. Uh, Acting like a real man would have remained firm and not have denied Jesus. A real man would not have been captivated by fear like he was. And he would not have been intimidated by all things of a servant girl who said, haven't I seen you with this man? No, 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 you haven't seen me. (coughs) A servant girl intimidates Peter. Part of Peter's failing to be a real man in this context is that he was unwilling to stand firm in the faith when the time of difficulty arose. When what Peter saw, when he saw what was happening to Jesus, fear gripped him. Fear gripped the other disciples as well. As Jesus says, they all left me. No one stood by him. Where were the men? Now, remember earlier, it, it seems to be odd that when one came to arrest Jesus, Peter would take the sword and uh, lopped off the ear of the servant to the high priest. But when it really came down to it, Peter, along with the rest, were overcome by fear, and they abandoned Jesus. So, real men will stand firm. Real men will be bold, and real men will die, if that's what it takes. Now, one thing is brought out in this text. When we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16... Be on the alert, and he talks about being on the alert as being acting like a man. Real men are vigilant in prayer, in other words. Real men are given to prayer. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62. <coughs> Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. I've loved this passage. It has the watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, who are... Day and night, never keeping silent. They're never falling asleep. They are vigilant. Now, what are they vigilant about? Well, it tells us. The Lord has sworn, well, no, he says, give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a a praise in the earth. You know what, what these watchmen are doing? They are constantly praying For the promises of God to come to pass in human history. That's what it says. 
until God makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth, until every knee bows to King Jesus. And Jesus, as we have seen, is waning right now, subduing his enemies. And as we mentioned before, the great tools, the divinely ordained weapons of warfare, spiritual warfare, are preaching and prayer. And here it, ex- it exalts prayer as the means by which we see Jerusalem made a praise in the earth. So we keep praying. We keep praying. No matter what the circumstances may appear around us, no matter how dismal it may seem, they keep praying. They keep praying the promises of God. That's what the watchmen are doing. Real men are on the alert. Real men pray vigilantly. So, real men are prayer warriors. So, males among us, are you men of prayer? Are you men of prayer? How often do you pray? Do you lead your wives and your children in prayer? Because that's what real men do. In other words, are you a real man who constantly prays and leads others to pray? Now, it's helpful to look at other aspects of the Scriptures so that we understand when Paul admonishes them in 1 Corinthians 16 to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like real men, be strong, he says. We're going to take a look at Deuteronomy 31 in a moment, where Moses, before his death, admonished Joshua, who would take over leading the uh, army of Israel. He is re, uh, Moses is relating to Joshua what God expects. But before we take a look at that passage in Deuteronomy, I want you to take a look at 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, King David is about to die. He's on his deathbed, and he's, he's brought his son Solomon before him, and he's going to give a charge to Solomon, who will be the next king of Israel. So we read in 1 Kings 2, verses 1 and 2, and I want you to notice the similarity with this with our passage in 1 Corinthians 16. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. That was his charge to Solomon, who would be the next king of Israel. Of all the things he could charge him with, he says, Show yourself strong. Prove to the world you're a man. Now, does this not, as I've said, is this not what our text in 1 Corinthians 16 admonished us with? Absolutely. Acting like a man is standing firm in the faith and is being strong. We're going to take a look at what that means in being strong. This charge of David to Solomon is fundamentally the same charge that Moses gave to Joshua and what God affirms to Joshua after Moses' death. So turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, and look at verses 5 through 8. And the Lord will deliver them up before you, 
and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, since we know that being strong is being a man, according to 1 Kings 2, we need to understand the biblical use of the word and the various usages attached to that. And so we're going to take a look. When it says, be strong, be a man, what does that really mean when it says, be strong? Because I guarantee you, it's not how much you can wait. Okay, that is not the strength that it's talking about. And so you can see already how many men, even Christian men, can can over-prioritize physical strength, thinking that is manhood. Men, well, yeah, a man needs to be, in one sense, physically strong to do battle. Absolutely. God says he trains those to do war. You better be in shape. But the strength that God is talking about here is not that kind of strength. It is a strength that is spiritual in nature. And so one of the first things associated with being strong is this. This is what the text says. It's being courageous. Courage is a manifestation of biblical strength. So when a man is strong, he is courageous in all of its ramifications. So courage is not, now biblical courage is not what our modern culture tells us, and it may on the surface seem to have some uh, merit to it. Oftentimes we see courage being defined, the action, the ability to do something despite fear. Brethren, that's not how the Bible portrays courage. The Bible portrays courage as not having fear in the first place. Look at where courage is found, and it's not being afraid. That's the point. If you're courageous, you're not afraid. A real man is a courageous man. And so courage is not doing, um, as we said, heroic things uh, with fear. Courage is acting without fear. That is biblical courage. Acting without fear. Now, that takes a lot. What do you think it takes to act without fear? It takes a firm belief in a sovereign God who controls all things to act without fear. It was what brought up earlier when the disciples were with Jesus in the boat and he, Jesus was sleeping in the rear of the boat, and this great storm arose, and the water was filling the boat. They all grabbed him and said, Do you not care, Jesus, we are perishing? I mean, from a human vantage point, it looked pretty serious. Water was already coming in the boat. But when Jesus awakens, you know what? 
He rebukes his disciples, saying, Why are you afraid? He calms the storm, and now it says they were afraid, because who is this that even the forces of nature obey his command? And so, in other words, Jesus says, Why were you afraid? You have God in the back of the boat who controls the storm, so why are you afraid? You see, therein we learn something about courage. Therein we learn something about faith. We learn about how fear is the opposite of faith. If you have courage, you have faith. And if you have faith and courage, you don't fear because you know, you know who's in charge. Example We saw in Deuteronomy 31, did it not say, be strong and of good courage, fear not, be not afraid. Right there, courage is not fear. So according to God, courage is the opposite of fear. Fear paralyzes people. Fear compels people to not obey God at many times. And one of the great examples in the Word of God is when God commanded Israel to take the land of Canaan. And Moses was leading them. And they sent out the twelve spies. And they came back and it says, Ten gave a bad report. And they gave a bad report because they said, You don't know who's in that land. They are the, uh, the, the sons of Anak are there. The giants of those days are there. And not only are there giants, they're not nomads like we're used to dealing with. They live in fortified cities. Now, they did acknowledge that the land was flowing with milk and honey. They brought back all this fruit. They brought back grapes where it took two men to carry them. I mean, it was a wonderful land, but the ten spies says, we can't do it. We can't do it because of this. So I'm telling you, you know, there was only two real men that spied out the land. And those two real men were Joshua and Caleb. Because Joshua and Caleb says, and here's how they admonished Israel. Did not God promise us the land? If he has promised us the land, let's take it. Let's take it. Because God has a promise. See, faith... And Joshua and Caleb were the only men of faith there, despite what they saw. Now, they saw the same things the other ten spies saw. They didn't see anything different. They saw the same circumstances, and yet they, whereas the others were terrified, and I'm going to tell you something, when there are not real men, and when there are males who don't act like real men, it has a way to infect a whole culture. Because it says these ten spies persuaded the nation they couldn't go into the land. And it says the whole nation wept that night. They just cried all night. They had a big pity party that night because they couldn't do it. And Joshua and Caleb kept trying to tell them, we can do it. We can do it. God has promised. Let's do it. They were the only ones that didn't have fear. They were men of courage. And so, the answer we're going to see is, and the reason why it says, be strong, be men of courage, don't be afraid. 
the text there says in verses 6 and 7, it says, because God is with us and he will not fail us. God is with us and he will not fail us. So when God gives a promise, we believe it. So in our text in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when it says, act like a man, stand firm in the faith, standing firm in the faith entails uncompromising fidelity to a belief that God is sovereign, that God will not fail, that God will not forsake us. It is an uncompromising confidence that the promises of God are true no matter what. There it is. A real man understands that God is not like a man. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Look at verses uh, Deuteronomy 23:19. I mean Numbers, Numbers 23:19. So <clears throat> males need to remind themselves of this. God, here's what Numbers 23:19 says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the, a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God's not going to lie to you. God didn't lie to Israel. He said, I've given you the land of Canaan, so go take it. He's not misleading anybody. He says, if you just obey me, if you just believe in me, believe in my promise, you will prevail. All you got to do is just act in light of faith in my promise, and you will prevail. God says, I'm not lying to you. God's not a man that he should lie. So when God gives you a promise, count on it. Count on it. So when God has a promise that one day, The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we look out here and say, I don't think so. We got to repent and say, I'm looking at it with the eyes, physical eyes, but I'm not looking at it in terms of the promise of God. See, if we look at the promise of God, we believe despite what we see. We get the idea of the meaning of strong when it says, be strong, act like a man. The Hebrew word for uh, strong is kazak. Now, what's interesting in this word and its usage, for example, turn with me to Job 2, verse 3. And you're going to see a use of this word kazak. And the Lord... And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, our word kazak is the word in the New American Standard, holds fast. There's the word. Job Holds fast. He's strong. 
in his integrity. He's holding fast as a man ought to. Turn over to Job chapter 27, verse 6. Well, we read that today, didn't we? Job 27, 6. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. So that word hold fast, there's the word kazak. So the idea of being strong and proving yourself to be a man, as David said to Solomon, be a man, show yourself, be strong, show yourself a man. Here's what it means. To be strong is to be firmly committed to godliness. It means to seek after righteousness. It is committed to biblical integrity no matter what. That is biblical strength. Let's keep in mind that David tells Solomon and his son to be a man, be strong and courageous. By the way, how is David assessed in the Word of God even after his death? Even in spite of his great failings. You know what God called David in light of his great failings? And there were some great failings. Solomon, when Solomon became unfaithful for a time, he says, Your heart is not right towards me as your father David's. God's assessment of David was the man after God's own heart. That was God's assessment of David. And the Psalms prove it, don't they? It breathes someone who loves God, who loves his law, who meditates on his law, who cries over the fact that people are not obeying the law. Now, unless someone thinks that biblical manhood isn't being rough and tough as well, I do need to remind you who fought Goliath. And uh, when no man, quote, male, was willing to go out and take on Goliath, David shows up. The shepherd, not even Saul, was willing to go out and fight Goliath. And David is, says, well, I'll go. And, and he will go and fight Goliath without fear. See, there's, there's your courage. He did not fear Goliath. So when Goliath came out, and you know, if you read the story, Goliath sought to intimidate David. And first of all, I mean, he is a rather big guy. And his spear, some said, could have weighed 200 pounds. And he is going to intimidate the shepherd boy, David, by telling him, here's what Goliath said to David. I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So here's this guy that has been intimidating Israel for I don't know how many days. Says that to David. Now, did David say, I don't think, I think I made a bad move. No. Here's what David said. David responded by saying to him, The God in whom I trust will give you into my hand, and the birds are going to eat your flesh today. Boom, boom, it's over. 
And then he takes his own sword and cuts his head off, and sure enough, the birds ate Goliath's flesh that day. Because God says, my God, and remember, and, and David has to rebuke Israel, and he says, who is this that defies the armies of the living God? I mean, David is upset that they're tolerating this man making these insults. He says, well, I'll deal with it. So, and remember, lest you think, uh, it is David who the Bible says did rescue sheep from lions and bears. <laughs> it says he grabbed the bear by its manes, and that's the male a lion, that is. Hunts down a lion and kills the lion. He's taken one of his sheep. How dare you? I mean, that's impressive. He was impressive in his physical abilities. But the most, I hope what to drive home to you, the most impressive thing about David was his unyielding confidence in the promise of God and to go out and take on the enemies of God without fear. Without fear. So the word strong denotes in Scripture steadfastness. Turn with me uh, to Psalm 27, verse 14. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Be strong. There's our word. Be strong and take courage. That's what we've been seeing, is it not? That pattern, strength and courage going hand in hand. Wait on the Lord. What are we waiting on? The Lord. For His promises to come to pass. We're trusting in His sovereignty. God is in control. We're not afraid. He will work it out for His glory. And so a real man waits on God. A real man is a man of hope. And a real man is a man of faith. And so being strong and courageous. Well, turn with me to Joshua 1.8. We'll start at verse 7. Joshua 1.7. Now Moses has died. Joshua now has taken over. Uh, headship over the nation. Now, God is going to affirm to Joshua what Moses charged Joshua with. Let's start at Joshua 1, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your ways prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, one thing is clear here. We've already talked about God is with us wherever we go. <coughs> but being strong and courageous in this context means what? Obedience 
to the law of God. Right? Meditate in my law day and night, and your way will be prosperous. So being strong and courageous is linked. It is linked with obedience to the law of God. It means careful study of the law of God so that you know how to apply it in every given instance. No male is a real man who doesn't frequently meditate on the word of God. I hope you got that. The attitude that's found in many evangelical churches today, sadly, is that the husband or the father relegates all spiritual activity to the wife and mother. That is to the shame of the men. That is tragic. The wife oftentimes takes the children to church while the, quote, the tough man, he thinks, sits at home who does who knows what. Of course, the attitude of some males in America is that it's a sissy thing to be spiritual. (laughs) Of course, that's the attitude, really, that reflects more of being a pagan than anything. The male who abdicates his role as a spiritual leader of his household is not a real man acting like a real man according to the Word of God. So it doesn't matter how muscular you might be to be a martial arts specialist. But the reality is, if you don't love God with all your heart, if you're not a man of prayer, if you're not a man who takes the promises of God and without fear applies it and is uncompromising, you're not acting like a real man according to the Bible. We've looked at the text. The Bible speaks for itself. God defines manhood, and it's not weak males that define manhood. So what is God's promise to real men as such as Joshua? It says he will make their way prosperous. They will have good success. He who meditates on the law of God with the the idea of how to apply it to my life, who will boldly go, and I'm not going to say boldly go when no man's gone before, but who will boldly go and carry out the promises of God and do them, that's the man whom God is going to bless. That's the man whose God makes his way prosperous. And so we see here, they ought to, men need to be men. After God, after all, when it talks about being successful in life, God says, if you meditate on my law day and night, I will make you, the general thrust is, I will make you successful. Now, if there's anything that is true of just men in general, There is an aspect to maleness that wants to go out and take charge of things, generally speaking, who want to take dominion. The problem is non-Christian men exercise that dominion in a wicked, ungodly way. But the idea of wanting to go out and conquer is a male thing that God has put there in them. So when God created Adam, the first human being, and as a male, what did God tell Adam to do. Take dominion over the earth. And he gave a charge. You're my vice regent. A vice regent means a co-ruler. Adam, 
You're a co-ruler. The world belongs to me, and you are being charged by me, your creator, to take dominion over the entirety of the earth. And woman was created to help man do that. She was created to be his helpmeet for the help the man take dominion over the earth. So, <clears throat> Adam was given this charge of world dominion. How are Christians to be engaged in this dominion? Well, they help bring this to pass by being real men according to the word of God, who take the promises of God and they believe them. Uh, They pray vigilantly for it to come to pass. They will uh, be willing to die for the cause of seeing Christ's cause advanced. And they will do it. And they will take those promises and without fear uncompromisingly promote the cause of Christ. Wherever it is, against all adversaries. Now, remember Paul saying, there's a lot of ministry opportunities open for me, but there are many adversaries. Did that stop him? No. It didn't stop Timothy. Although Timothy did have a problem with timidity, with fear. He was young, and Paul kept reminding the churches, don't despise his youthfulness. Because in terms of commitment, he's about as committed as anybody to the cause. He does have a problem with some fear, which Paul has to admonish him not to be afraid. But these men, they advance the cause of Christ at the peril of their own lives. But that's what a real man does. But there's another aspect. If you turn to our text... In 1 Corinthians 16, notice what verse 14 says. We would be remiss if we didn't mention this. That all that you do be done in love. That's taken along right with verse 13. So that, in other words, in being on the alert and standing firm in the faith and acting like men and being strong, means that you also do all those things in love. Now, turn with me to Ephesians 5, that very common exhortation to husbands in verse 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's stop right there. One of the things that That Jesus did. He died for the church, right? He came to die for the church. He gave himself up for her, the church. Right there that tells you if a husband is to love his wife, it means he's willing to die for his wife. It means he's willing to die for his his family. Literally. He protects the home. We even learned about that recently that uh, a year ago when those tornadoes were going through through Alabama, This was a Christian home. We learned about it through Chalcedon. The family had gathered down in the basement when the tornado was coming, and the parts of the 
I forget what it was, was beginning to cave in, and the father gathered some of the children and put himself over the children, and when the beams came down, it killed him. But the children were saved. And he was a Christian man. So he was a Christian man who, in an act that was needed, sacrificed his life, literally, for his family. But that's what Jesus does. See, real men will do everything they can to protect their families. Well, what else? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and blameless. So right there, what does it tell us about manhood? What does it talk about love? Well, real men will look out for the spiritual interests of their wives and their families. Because Jesus did everything to sanctify the bride, right? Well, that's what a husband does. That's why the men need to be the spiritual leaders in the home. It says, um, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church. Now, one of the things when it says that <clears throat> that we are to love one another, First uh, Corinthians uh, 16. Remember, Jesus said in John 13 that um, that we are to love one another as I have loved you. Now, how has Jesus loved? His disciples. He gave it in the context of the Last Supper. Remember what he did to them? He washed their feet. Peter didn't want him to wash his feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He says, well, then do everything, Jesus. <laughs> and when Jesus finished washing their feet, he says, I have given you an example for you to follow. Well, what was he doing? The example was a servant. So being a real man and loving as a real man does means, not only do you sacrifice, it means you are a servant to other people. You're a servant to your family. You're a servant to the community. Well, what does America need? America needs real men. We are at a time of crisis presently, and there is a real need for biblical men. And I don't know what God has to do to us. If we, he has to take us through the judgment. But if there ever was a time for real men to stand up, it's now. Who will, without compromise, say, I stand on the word of God, like Josiah stood before the nation, and he says, and he swore an oath that he would keep the law with all his heart, all his days. And all the people were gathered. It is men who will stand upon the word without compromise and without fear. Wherever it demands, whether you lose your reputation or not, you stand on the word of God. You don't compromise biblical truth. You set an example for others. That's the great need of the hour. And as Paul is closing out his letter to the Corinthians... Be on the alert, be stand firm, act like men, be strong.
Let's pray.